God, we just want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you that when we read your word, uh, we understand something more of who you are, of your character and your ways. And we pray this morning, Lord, won't you encourage us, won't you help us to see you with new eyes and understand your goodness and the the heart of your your Father heart towards us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, something happened a month ago that was in the news, and you might have read about it or you might not have, but it certainly caught my attention for a number of reasons. And over the past month or so, I've been giving it a, a lot of thought. And so what I would like to share today is something that's come out of those thoughts around this news event that happened. So maybe, Maddie, if you could put up that first slide, the next one. You might uh, all remember this news headline uh, that the Pope approves the change to the Lord's Prayer. Um, This is a Guardian report. And in the news report it said, Pope Francis has risked the wrath of traditionalists by approving a change to the wording of the Lord's Prayer. Instead of saying, lead us not into temptation, it will say, do not let us fall into temptation. The Pope said in 2017, he believed the wording should be altered. It's not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation, he told Italian TV. I am the one who falls. It's not him pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. After French bishops altered the words in 2017, Philip Lawler, the editor of the Catholic World News, a conservative website, said, it just makes you wonder where does it stop? What's up for grabs? It's cumulative unease. So quite a controversial article, don't you think? It certainly got me thinking uh, that actually if the Pope can say that maybe the words of Jesus are not quite right, it's a, it's a little concerning. <laughs> but at the same time, it certainly got me thinking about that verse because it's not a comfortable, easy verse and hence the wrestle with why he wanted to change it. So I do want to say that there's nothing new in this attempt to alter the Lord's Prayer. Uh, This has been going on for centuries. And uh, if you go to the next slide, Maddie, I found a sermon by Charles Spurgeon in 1863. And he addressed the same design people to make a change to this, this line of the Lord's Prayer. And this is what he says in his 1863 sermon. He says, some good but very ignorant men have gone the length of altering our Lord's words. I have heard of one who always said, leave us not in temptation, a most unwarranted and unjustifiable alteration of Holy Scripture. There is an end of Scripture altogether if license be given to alter its teaching according to our will. There can be no better translation of the Greek than that which we have before us. The Greek does not say, leave us not in temptation, nor anything like it. It says, as nearly as English language can convey the meaning of the original, lead us not into temptation. And no sort of 
pinching, twisting, or resting can make this prayer convey any other sense than that which our version conveys in so many words. And he goes on to say, let us always be afraid of attempting improvements on God's perfect word. And when our theories will not stand with divinely revealed truth, let us then alter our theories. But let us never attempt for one single moment to put one word of God out of its place. So Spurgeon, all those a century, a century ago, was already contending with this, wrestling with this passage, lead us not into temptation. For me, this reflects a great concern. You see, Spurgeon was very much concerned about the eroding of the authority of Scripture in our modern age. And this has been a steady, slippery slope. And when the Pope believes that his opinion is higher than the authority of Scripture, I think we are on very dangerous ground. However, this attitude towards Scripture is not unique to the Pope. I think that the centrality of the Word of God in both contemporary and traditional church meetings has become at best of secondary importance and at worst, I think it's become a tokenism where sermons are more anecdotal than based on the Word of God. I think another contributing factor to the way that the authority of Scripture is diminished in our lives is, and that brings a casualness in our attitude towards it is that for many of us, we've ditched a solid, in-depth study of God's Word and of scripture, passages of Scripture for bite-sized snippets of decorative little posts on, on social media that have a Bible verse all nicely decorated, and I post those myself. But if that's our complete diet of the Word of God, it's not a very wholesome one for us. And the overflow of that is that as believers, we're not being discipled to build our lives on the whole counsel of God. You see, we're only digesting those passages that we like and we discard the uncomfortable, challenging passages that cause us to really mature in our faith and our understanding of God's character and His ways. And I want to say that as an eldership team at Forest Time, we are passionately committed to holding the supreme authority of the Bible as God's revealed word to His church. And one of our values, if you've done our, our grounded course, is that we, we really value the thing of the Word and the Spirit. Sometimes some churches might emphasize just the Word and neglect the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit or are all about the Holy Spirit and just a token to the Word. But we really believe that it's those two things together that we devote ourselves to the Word of God which anchors us and directs us. And as we love and embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our meetings, that He empowers us and He needs us, leads us. So we need both. We need the Word and we need the Spirit. We need to have those two held in tension. I'm very excited to say that one of the things we want to look at doing, and we've done it before in the past, is we, um, we ran the Bible course, which is uh, written by Andy Ollerton. Many of you may know Andy Ollerton. And uh, it was taken up by the Bible Society and is now being translated into many, many languages and has gone international since we did it all those years ago. And it's 
come out in a second edition. So Andy's going to be coming to the church in January next year, and he's going to launch the second edition of the Bible course. So we're going to be able to do that in our life groups. And the second edition is just like, it's re- if you did the first one, it was great. This one is like, whoop, really, really good. And I think it's, it's just a wonderful tool for us to... Um, just really understand the flow and the theme of Scripture and what's, um, just to get to grips with the Bible. So we really want to see ourselves discipled in that way. But the question is, no matter what the Pope did, and, and I think one can understand he's wrestling on one level, uh, I think the irony of that headline, if you just go back to that headline, Maddie, it shouldn't escape us led not into temptation, and I wonder if he was. But um, what do we do when we run across a passage of Scripture? If you can jump two slides forward, Maddie. What do we do when we run across a passage of Scripture that really troubles us or even makes us doubt? How do we handle it when it seems the Bible might be wrong? And when facing such a problem, it's easy to fall into one of two extremes. Do we just accept things with a blind faith, irrational faith, not thinking it through without wrestling with a passage to really, really understand its meaning? Or on the other extreme, at the slightest hint of disconcerting scriptures, do we simply reject the Bible as inspired or infallible and assume that all the critics are right and the Bible is merely a human book describing the beliefs of people in the distant past? Well, 1600 years ago, the pastor and scholar Augustine described how he approached these kinds of challenges. You see, really, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) These things have been centuries old. People have wrestled with these things. And Augustine had to help his church look at how to wrestle with difficult scriptures. So he came up with three suggestions, and his methods are still very sound for us today. And the first thing he said is when you come to a piece of scripture that you really don't understand and is difficult for you, the first thing you do is you pray. Because if the Bible was written through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we need the illumination of the Spirit to properly interpret the scriptures. We need to humbly ask God to help us understand the heart of what he's telling us in his word. So as we pray, we invite him to direct our study through his Holy Spirit. And then Augustine said, check the translation. It's very easy for us to get the wrong understanding of a scripture passage because of an unclear translation, maybe using more archaic English. For example, many people get confused by by Jesus' desire to suffer the little children to come to me. We think, why must the little children suffer? But not realizing today that actually if that was written in a more colloquial translation, it would just say, allow the little children or don't prevent the little children from coming to me. So it's so wonderful now. There's so many apps on, online. You can have parallel translations. So if you go onto an app called or a web page called Bible Hub, you can get the King James, which might have the old English, but you can get new modern translations and have the parallels together. So we can check the translations to help us understand better. And then the third thing that Augustine would say is check the manuscripts. 
check the notes. Uh, this may sound very technical and maybe feel a little intimidating, but thankfully, we can all check the manuscripts today. All it takes is reading some of the notes in our Bible, and that gives us a little contextual understanding. You'll see there's little footnotes, and sometimes in the middle of your Bible, there's cross-references, so you can go see what other passages in the Bible say, or as I said, you could go on an online commentary. We can check the notes. All of those things help us when we're trying to understand passages that are difficult for us to understand. So let's go back to our verse, lead us not into temptation. Where does that leave us in response to this very challenging verse? And as I was thinking about it, I thought the best way to tackle it is to answer three questions. What is meant by temptation in this passage in Matthew 6 verse 13? Secondly, does it really mean that God leads us into temptation? And thirdly, why was it so important for Jesus to teach us to pray these words? So I want to, the next while, just unpack those three questions as a way of answering and looking at what the Pope was wrestling with. And I'm certainly not putting myself above the Pope, or I hope you're not getting there, but I really am passionate about the fact that this, the Word of God is the Word of God, and it's good to do justice to it and to really understand it. So the first question we want to look at is, what is meant by temptation in Matthew 6 verse 13? So you may know this verse very well, and uh, it's in James 1 verse 13, and it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, it can seem very difficult to reconcile that declaration by the Apostle James with what Jesus is saying that we should pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. How do we get around that? James is saying God doesn't have anything to do with us being tempted. He doesn't entice us to sin. And yet Jesus is saying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So we could ask the question, can we get out of this difficulty by supposing that the word temptation does not mean temptation, but must be restricted to the sense of a trial or a test. So it's actually saying, Lord, don't lead us into difficult trials. Is that the sense in which temptation is used? And we read in the King James Version of Genesis 22 from verse 1 to 2, it says that God tempted Abraham. So that's how it says it in the King James Version. God tempted Abraham. So it says, sometime later, God tempted Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then the, God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now the Hebrew word in the original text that's used for the word tempted here is nissa, and it means to be tested or proved. And so in this passage, we are by no means to understand that God enticed Abraham to anything that was evil. The meaning of the word in that place, doubtless, is simply and only that God tried and tested him to prove the substance of his faith. 
But this interpretation won't stand in our Matthew 6 verse 13 verse because the word that is used for temptation is not the word constantly written when trial is mentioned. And the very word that's used in this verse in Matthew 6 verse 13 is the word that's used for temptation to sin. The Greek word is peir... I need some Greek help is it peiram rasmos? Is that right? Okay. Pe Periasmos. Thank you, Maria. <laughs> um, and it's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted be what beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out for you so you can endure it. So there, in those two verses, there's a different word, that word that's used when Abraham was tempted. These are words that deal specifically an enticement to sin. So although entering a time of temptation may be considered a trial, in this verse, it's literally saying, Lord, Please don't lead us into temptation to sin. Okay, so there's no, there's no question about that word temptation in the translation. And then we have to ask our, answer our next question. Does it really mean that God leads us into temptation? Because there's a, a big difference between leading into temptation and actually tempting as the passage in James has already shown us, God tempts no man. For, for God to tempt in the sense of enticing to sin is completely inconsistent with his nature. It's altogether contrary to his character. So does God actually lead us into a place where we are tempted or is it rather as Pope Francis redefined the verses meaning don't allow us to fall into temptation. And to go back to that sermon that Spurgeon preached in 1868, he says this very interestingly. He says that for God to lead us into those conflicts with evil, which we call temptations, is not only possible, but usual. He says, full often the captain of our salvation leads us by his providence to battlefields where we must face a fierce array of evil and conquer through the blood of the Lamb. And this leading into temptation is overruled for our good by His divine grace. Since being tempted, we grow strong in peace, in grace and patience. And we know this was true also for Jesus, doesn't it say after he was um, baptized, it said, and the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It uses those very words of God doing that to his son. You see, when God leads us into a place of temptation, God leads us into temptation for examination and not for condemnation. The devil tempts men and women that he may ruin them. That's what he's out. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
That's what He wants to do with our lives. That's not our heart of our Father towards us. But God leads us into temptation for examination and refinement, that the chaff may be sifted from the wheat, that the dross may be separated from the fine gold. You see, when the Lord leads us into temptation, it is always for our good. He leads us to battle, not so that we can get wounded and defeated, but that we may win a glorious victory and prepare us for future deeds of courage. Temptations that are overcome, and think of your own life when you've overcome in an area that you've been tempted in, they have inestimable blessings in our lives because they make us lie more humbly at His feet. They bind us more firmly to our Lord and they train us to help others. Because when we have been tempted, we can lift the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees of our brothers and sisters who've been tempted in the same way. And we can comfort them with the same comfort we ourselves have received. So it seems that the Lord does lead us into a place of temptation. But now we come to the the real challenge of the verse. Because Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. So if God leads us into temptation for our good, why then does Jesus tell us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation? Well, while the benefits which God brings out of our being led into temptation is very great, he would not do anything to harm us. Still, temptation in itself is so dangerous Trial and distress in themselves are so perilous that it is right for the Christian to pray, lead us not into temptation. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, temptation is the best school in which the Christian can enter. Yet in itself, apart from the grace of God, is so doubly hazardous that this prayer should be offered every day lead us not into temptation, or if we must, deliver us from evil. I must say, when I read those words of Martin Luther a, a month ago, I, um, I actually have been praying this every single day. And it's a really interesting thing because it's actually made me aware of how many situations I could get into that actually I could don't have to go into. If I pray this and ask the Lord, don't let me be tested in this way. Deliver me from this. So I want us to explore why why should we make this a daily prayer? Why was Jesus so clear about that being something we should pray as believers? And maybe like me, the Lord's Prayer is something you've prayed glibly, just by rote, Lord, our Father in heaven, and we just go through it all and we say, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, amen. Maybe you say it like that. And suddenly we stop and we think, God, what are you telling us to pray? Lead us not into temptation. 
So I want to ask the question, why does Jesus want us to make this a daily prayer for our lives? And the Lord's Prayer is also a corporate prayer. It's not just for us personally, but it's what we are to pray for our families, for our church, and for our brothers and sisters. So the first thing I want to say is, first of all, remember your own heart. There is a weak point in every single one of us. The strength of a rope is to be measured not according to its strength in its strongest part, but in its weakest part. When we know our vulnerabilities, whether it is to appease ourselves with drink or drugs or sex, or those sensibilities of our spirit that doubt God's goodness or are jealous or are easily angered, each day we are to pray, Lord, I know my weakness Lead me not to be tempted in these things. But if in your wisdom I must, then deliver me from evil and let me overcome in these areas of my life. I think the longer you are a Christian, maybe the things that you are tempted in might not be the external vices that might be difficult for some. They are the internal things of the heart. Perhaps perhaps it is a temptation to gossip. Maybe it's a temptation to be complaining and negative. Maybe it is a temptation to be cynical of others. These are not so obvious sins, and yet they are there in our hearts. And as we get to know ourselves, we can say, God, I don't want that to become the flavor and the the quality of my life. Deliver me from evil and lead me not to be tempted in these ways. But I also um, want to say that God does lead us. Maybe you've had a breakthrough in an area, but God tests us again. He sometimes leads us back into an area of temptation because he wants to see that we have had the breakthrough. He wants us to win the victory so that we can know for ourselves that the next time you're tempted to gossip and you actually choose to say, um, I don't feel it comfortable with this conversation. You've had a victory in that area in your life. So some, God wants us to be overcomers, not just wondering if we are victorious in that way. The second reason why I believe we should pray this, this thing in our lives is when I see another person ship, shipwrecked, I should mind that I carefully navigate my own boat. I always think of that, uh, that saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. Lest we become judgmental of when someone else falls morally or is in a, in a bad place. But for the grace of God, there go I. Spurgeon says this in his sermon, he commented, he says, I met brothers and sisters who had backslidden and fallen into sin and afterwards had been restored. And though I have rejoiced in their restoration, yet I never can help noticing how different they are from what they used to be. So quiet now so sad in appearance too and though perhaps better men than they ever were yet the joy of God is gone the spring has gone out of their souls they cannot dance with David before the ark now you never find David dancing after his sin with Bathsheba not he there was no dance in him after that 
And therefore we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And the third thing I think uh, why we should pray this daily is a thousand believers live in holiness every day, living godly lives, and nobody says anything about them. But if one falls into sin, the whole world rings with it. Look at these Christians. Lord, lead us not into temptation that we may not fall and bring dishonor to your name and to your beautiful bride, the church. That's a good reason to pray that prayer. So I want to just finish off then with uh, some practical tips for us and to look at what does the Bible then teach us in how we are to deal with temptation because it comes to all. Uh, there's, no, there's no one here who's not tempted. And to be tempted is not a sin. It's when we give in to the temptation. We are all tested. The Lord leads us in areas where he, where he wants us to overcome. So the first key, key that I, I believe is we have to understand how temptation works. And uh, I want to just go back to that James 1 verse 13, but reading up to verse 15. And it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Let's get that settled in our thinking. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. There's a progression there. Do you see it moving along? So we, we really need to understand the state of our own hearts, that all of us have desires inside of us that don't glorify God uh, or they don't edify us or our relationships. All of us have those, whether it's selfishness, meanness, unkindness, uh, lustfulness, all of these things. They don't glorify God. We all have these things inside of us. And temptation comes, and it's almost like when those desires are drawn out and enticed by the world around us and by Satan, the great tempter. And we just have to put ourselves in a context where we are vulnerable to those desires being lured out of us. And already that's the spark to temptation becoming a sin. When we give in to the temptation, we miss the mark of God's perfection for us. And a life that's continually given over to sinning, this passage says it only brings death to us. It brings death spiritually. You may be saved and I may be saved, but if we continually give over to temptation in our lives, we don't lose our salvation. You understand that. But what we lose is our intimacy and our closeness with our Father. We will find ourselves living as though He is not our Father when He is. And that's a very sad place to be in. Because Paul, James is writing to believers when he says this. Sin may seem pleasurable, or excusable for a season, but its end is our destruction. And I believe that when we understand the cycle of temptation and sin and its effect on our lives, it helps us think before we act or speak. And that's a good way to tackle temptation, isn't it? Think a little. When you're in a situation, when your mouth just wants to go, Bleh! stop, stop. <laughs> 
Stop and think about what it's sowing into your life. And then the second thing I want to say is what we feed our thought life with and what we watch and listen to either strengthens evil desires or starves them. And we see this passage in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So we don't go around hitting people and smacking people um, if they cause us to be tempted. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So this passage is talking about things that go on in our thought life. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How do we help? Second way of dealing with temptation, be aware of your thought patterns. What triggers your anxiety or your anger or cynical thoughts or desire to do something that you know is unhealthy or ungodly? With God's Spirit, we have the power to keep those cycles in check by actively choosing to feed our minds with encouraging and godly understanding. And then the third thing I just want to finish off with is when we face temptation, I want to say is leave your coat and run. Get out of there. (laughs) That's what Joseph did. Do you remember the story? He was made a servant in Potiphar's house and uh, Potiphar's wife found him very attractive and she made an advance towards him and uh, he knew this was bad news. So she must have held him, but he wriggled out of his coat and just left his coat and got out of there. He ran out naked, or at least without his coat on. But, uh, and unfortunately, she used that to accuse him of attempted rape. But the thing is that he escaped temptation. He ran out of there. And I want to say, don't linger in the place where you know temptation is at your door. God will never lead you into a situation or put you in a testing place where there's no way out. And we know that, we've read that this morning already in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. If if you're going through a testing time at the moment, I want to say you're not alone if you're being tempted in an area. This is not, I'm the only one in the world experiencing this temptation. I'm the only one who gets these thoughts. No, you're not. So just be free on that level. <laughs> you're not the only one. We all, we all experience different kinds of temptations. But God is faithful and he'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Your temptation may seem an impossible thing to resist, but God wants us to realize that we can't resist in our own strength. We really do need the power of His Spirit. We need the power of His Spirit to love, to care, to live this life. How much more do we need His Spirit to resist those things which tempt us in our lives and that are difficult for us? So I hope this message has been encouraging to you. Uh, I hope on one level that you will 
challenge those things. I, I just, for me, I just want to say outwardly, it's totally unacceptable to change the words of Jesus because we can't let it fit into our understanding or theology of God. Then our theology needs to come and try and understand how God works. We need to be we need to be courageous in holding to the Word of God. But secondly, I, I want to really pray. And I do, I've been this last month, I've especially been praying for us as a church community. I pray over your lives. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And if we should face temptation, then deliver us from evil. That we will be a victorious community. That we'll be overcomers because we have the Spirit of God within us. So what more wonderful thing to do now than to come together and to break bread? Because that's where we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us, that He has paid the price. There is no condemnation. Even if you've messed up today and you're thinking, oh, I gave in to the temptation, be, be happy because there's no condemnation. God forgives you. If you. You also need to forgive yourself as well. Let us come to the, the place of, of remembering what Jesus has done. Let's remind ourselves that we are forgiven and that we can walk with a fresh new mercy and grace for each day that, that we have. Does that help you? Okay. So, um, so I think we've got, we've got three tables like we normally do. If you're visiting, please, you're most welcome to join us. Um, there's bread and wine. Maybe you want to pray with someone. Maybe you want to have a quiet, reflective moment out of what I've, I've shared this morning. But I just want to leave you with this last thought. Um, the Bible also says, confess your sins to one another. And the reason for that is that when we bring something out, out into the light, it breaks its power over our lives. I don't know what it is, but maybe you might just share with someone who you can trust, someone who you know loves you, and just say, this thing is constantly a temptation in my life. It's, where I, it's my weak point, and I'm really struggling with this. Please pray for me. You know that that already has undermined that temptation just by saying, I need help in that. So I just want to encourage you. I know that takes courage, but maybe you can ask God to show you who would you share with so that you can overcome in your life in every way. Okay, so I want to invite you up and then we're going to have a time of worship. Just maybe we can sing that song, Clive, there is freedom at the table of the Lord. Wonderful. So why don't you stand? I'm going to just pray and then let's take communion together. Father God, we ask this morning, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you, Father, for the good news uh, that you are helping us to be overcomers. You are helping us to become victors. You're helping us to be those that are not under the, the power of sin, but we are in a new dispensation under the, sun, uh, the, the dispensation of your Son, which is about grace and forgiveness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we thank you this morning as we take the the bread and the wine and we remember what you did for us so that we can be free. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.